This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of talking to a Tony Award-winning performer who wrote and starred in his own show on Broadway called Jay Johnson's The Two and Only. He has been seen on David Letterman and as the star of the TV series Soap. He is recognized as one of the greatest ventriloquists in the world, but he's also a great writer, singer, fabulous wit, and today we vent with superstar Jay Johnson. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity, la 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 la, la 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 la. Hey, Pat. How are you, my friend? I'm well. How often do people say, we vent with Jay Johnson? Not often enough. Usually they say, we're going to talk to the other dummy, you know, or one of those oh, things. You know, oh. dummy joke. Of course, yeah. I got you. Well, let's start with that word, because I know where the origin of the word dummy came from is something that you mentioned in your one-man show, and I don't think a lot of people necessarily know that. Will you tell people how that got associated with the puppet? Absolutely. First of all, I don't particularly uh, like the word because it's the root word is dumb, yeah. which means unable to speak, right? So if something speaks, you're kind of working against yourself to call it dumb. But in early ventriloquism, instead of just being a guy with a puppet and doing a stand-up, basically, they did shows, they did plays. So the characters were played by life-size puppets, basically. And usually they were made out of store window dummies. So one reviewer at one point called them dummies and that stuck so i see yeah that was the courtroom drama where they were full-size mannequins absolutely 20 characters what was the name of that performer it was called witness for the prosecution i think and it was fred russell who did that yeah and he played all 19 characters yeah yeah that's amazing really either you didn't want to pay the other actors <laughs> that that could be that could be however his setup was amazing because he had choreographed it so that when he was at one particular part of the stage, those puppets would talk with a foot pedal. So he choreographed it, and he could talk to the right people, and they would talk back. So Right, but he didn't have to be adjoining them with his hand in it or something of that nature. No, 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 not at all. He, he was the prosecutor, I believe, yeah. That's very so clever. Well, you play all the characters in your show, The Two and Only, everything from a bottle to a nutcracker to a <laughs> monkey to a telephone to a tennis ball. And you get the most out of every element. So people know you as a ventriloquist, but I can see you as an actor and I can see you as a writer and an impressionist and a director. And all of those <laughs> things seamlessly play into the work you do. And the reason I describe all of that is that as a playwright, I see that you're writing these, what I call French scenes, because you stay on stage and a different character joins you. And that takes place, a relationship gets built. So talk to me a little bit about how you develop a new routine within your act. I have to start from the fact that that character is a character. You know, it's not just a joke. It's not just a, a puppet is a representation of something. And never been able to fall in love with a puppet and say, oh, I can do something with that. Because usually I can't. But if I have something inside that says, you know... I feel like a character that's like crazy, like out of the woods, and then a monkey develops out of that. But yeah, I can never go backwards, can't go from face to, to inside. Okay, well, that's interesting. And also, there seems to be intention. So in the case with the monkey coming from the wild, he has something he wants to do. He wants to sing a song yeah. 
against whatever your intention is. Yes, yes. It feels like that's why those scenes are so complete and have such nice buttons at the end, is that there's some kind of want going on. Well, yeah, they all want center stage, I think is what they do. So The characters, I, there's two schools of thought. One is, I know that a lot of ventriloquists will say, well, I need a new character every time I tour so that people will come out and see a new character. And I understand that. But there's something to the fact that Edgar Bergen only had Charlie and Mortimer and Jimmy Nelson only had Danny O'Day and Farfel. And people kept coming to see them just because they were funny and they developed into these incredible uh, characters. They wasn't one and done. Well, I think it's heart. Ultimately, I don't look at your characters and I don't go, oh, Jay's up there with a puppet. I see two people. Well, if you don't, then there's something missing in ventriloquism. You know, it's like watching the magician do the slight, you know, you go, oh, it's okay, but I saw that, you know. But you're so good at it that you make the audience forget that you are alone. They suspend belief and they get into this moment where they're invested in the conflict. Yeah. And part of that is the mechanics. You are so good at being, I'll call you the straight man because so many times you are. Yep, yep. And you're driving the narrative, but this loose cannon that comes on board, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter what it is, a snake or a tennis ball or whatever, you suddenly have to deal with it. And you have such a great button down look that people forget that you're also the mind and voice of the thing you're fighting with. It's the ultimate act, I think, to do that. What's great about ventriloquism, and I guess to a degree comedy teams, that the conflict then is built in, you know, two people with two different points of view. And most of comedy is really close to tragedy and conflict, you know. So a dialogue is sometimes easier to make that happen. Have you ever had a character that you invested in and it just didn't pay off? One that was not so successful years ago, and I'm talking maybe middle 70s, when video was just coming in, but you couldn't even really tape. It was just kind of a closed circuit television. And I got one of those and I mounted it in a podium upwards and I had a slot where I could put a puppet. So I'm behind a podium, but on the screen, there was a puppet that looked to be independent of me and it worked okay, except people just assumed it was an animated character ah. that was pre-done and you could never say, no, no, this is happening live. And as many things that you could do that would tell them that has to be done live, it just kind of went past. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what in magic they call the two perfect theory. Just the idea that, oh, well, I'm just watching a TV set and a dude. What's the big deal? Yeah. You do it so well that they they can't go really go on the ride. Yeah. Let me ask you another mechanical thing. And, and this is something I don't know how you do any of it. But, you know, with distant voices or a voice in a box or a voice in a suitcase, you have all these different ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what's your gauge of, how far in the suitcase? How far away? <laughs> How much of a meter in your head do you go, this thing's three feet away and it's inside two boxes? I think it's all a cheat because it's just the way I perceive it would be. One of the things I do in the show, and I worked it out in a club, is take a SM58 microphone. And while the Bob is talking to the suitcase, I lay it on the suitcase. And the voice changes to that degree. It's not th that difficult. It's just coming up with the idea of this is what it would sound like if that's what it is and just finding that. I, I don't know if it's like my dyslexia would say, I need to throw it three feet rather than four feet. That's really interesting. So the illusion of the visual is what sends the message to the audience. Absolutely. And at that moment that you decide to put your hand down, you change your register. 
Exactly. The microphone is a smoking gun clue because everybody knows it has to come from this. Right. So all the attention is there. They're not really thinking that I'm still on the microphone, even though I do it that way. Yeah, That's so. great. Well, now you just mentioned dyslexia. So I think this is an important thing in terms of how you develop this talent or why you develop this talent. How were you impacted by reading or presenting or speaking when you were younger? And did it make you head this direction or did you do other things first? Pretty much ventriloquism was my escape from dyslexia. And for me, it was people kept saying, you're not trying in school. You're not keeping up. And they didn't think that I was stupid. You're just not trying. So rather than having a problem, I just was unmotivated. But ventriloquism is something that doesn't require spelling or math in any sort of reading. It's a spoken language. It's the way you do that. So for me, it was perfect because I have a pretty good recall. I can memorize things fast. So to speak them has not been a problem for me. But it was helpful to have that. Uh, and I'm sure as you were growing up, the fact you could do something kept you from being isolated or bullied or whatever, because you had something that you did. And in high school, some guy said, do you want a cigarette? And I thought, well, <laughs> maybe. And a guy next to me said, oh, he doesn't do that. He's a ventriloquist. And there was his voice. And saying, so it was like, Oh, okay. Okay. That's, you know, friends looking out for you. So. so I thought maybe you sent a voice into the cigarette or something. Now that would have been something. Yeah. I always wanted to be able to do those impossible deals that ventriloquists are always accused of. You know, I turned around and there was no one there, you know, and uh, it's a little more complicated than that. But you never like going through the metal detector at the airport when they open your luggage, <laughs> you never did it for fun. Some kind of prank of voice throwing one time, one time. And to me, it was one of my best moments. I was trying to get through customs in Dominican Republic. That's one of And we got there and then there was Bob and the guy opened the suitcase and he went, oh. And I went, yeah, I'm ventriloquist like that. And so he wants to just say, oh, okay, okay, shut the case. Language problem. <laughs> but a supervisor comes over and goes, no. And he just starts speaking in, I assume, Spanish. And all I heard was da-da-da-da-da, marijuana, data and points. And so I go, okay. So he said, take it out. So I, I now take Bob out. And they, they're going through the case and they're knocking. They're doing all this stuff like this. And then they their gaze gets on Bob. Now I'm just, I've got Bob. I'm not trying to do anything other than just get out of the way. And the guy says, open it. And he pointed to Bob's head. Now, I know that what he means is, wants me to take the back off and show that there's nothing inside this head, which can be done with, you know, four or five hours work and screwdrivers. I mean, it can't be done there. So I thought, open it, open it. Okay. So I reached in and I just opened his mouth. Like, open. It's open. Like, here we go. Yeah, yeah. So that confused him a little bit. But then he kind of takes a flashlight <laughs> and he kind of frisks him, <laughs> looks up in there. And then he takes his hand behind Bob's head and kind of does this, like, you know, joints are just going to fall on the floor and he's going to bust me. He's, ba he's banging the back of his head. Yeah, but this is not good for this mechanism. So I know that just saying, please don't do that or whatever is not going to help. So I just had Bob scream like he was being molested. <laughs> and the entire airport turns around to see what's going on. And of course, he's doing this, and Bob is going, help, 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 help. And I, I could have smuggled the, you know, the crown jewels out that day because nobody wanted to touch it. That's pretty funny. For those who don't know, 
Bob is your longtime partner that started with you initially in soap. Yes, yes. I actually auditioned with Squeaky for soap, which was a character that had been carved for me by my mentor. But they just thought he wasn't the right look. You know, that's Hollywood. He needs to be look somewhere else. I just watched your show, The Two and Only, on Amazon Prime. It is a wonderful salute to the history of ventriloquism and a full-on valentine to your mentor, Arthur Seving. Yes, yes. Squeaky was carved for you by this amazing ventriloquist who handmade the puppets. And there's so much in the show that I'm going to encourage the audience for less than a $5 bill, you can enjoy the (laughs) entire thing on Amazon Prime. But when you talk to Squeaky about him not getting the part on soap, even though you auditioned together, it is so moving. It's such a lovely father-son moment that is worthy of courtship of Eddie's father. (laughs) Well, thank you, Pat. Thank you. The amazing thing is that Squeaky and Bob, I always think of as very close to each other personality-wise. And Squeaky used to get away with a lot of things because he did have a sweeter face than Bob. Squeaky was just going to be a reference in the show. I was just going to say, and Squeaky, I don't know how I'm going to tell him and we move on. And the director of Soap, Jay Sandwich, who saw early attempts at the show, he saw that and he came up and said, you've got to do that scene where you tell Squeaky didn't get the part. And I said, but the characters are so close. And he said, not in this context. I said, well, you know, we try anything until it doesn't work. So my two directors and I, and I said, okay, this run through, I'll just put some together. And we did. And it pretty much stayed that way for the rest of the run. It felt right. And Jay Sandwich was correct. It was a scene that needed to be at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, they may have a personality similarity or even a voice similarity. It was really interesting when you had to own that you got the part, but he didn't. And then you said, it's just that you're too sweet. And he says, Fuck them or something. He says, get a fucking chisel. Right, right. That's the line. Like, he'll he'll take a facelift for this, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's great. And I'm not, I, I'm not spoiling any jokes because everything in context is so worthwhile. That's something that all comedians struggle with. I've tried every word except fucking chisel, you know, friggin' chisel, uh, goddamn chisel. There's something about the rhythm of of the curse word that is irrelevant to its meaning. The rhythm works and nothing else works quite as well. The laugh might be there, but it won't be that pound, you know? Right. And the other thing about it is you are splitting the arrow on the bullseye with those words. You're not hitting just a little to the right or a little to the left. Exactly. And I think that that's a lesson for anybody in a writing business, but part of it is that you do this very clean show going on and you have a very sweet (laughs) puppet and whatever. So the element of shock, yeah. it's masterful. So you don't have to make any apology to me for that. Thanks. It's just, I'm a big student of language. And I think that sometimes when people add language to their act, they add it for the wrong reason. Curse words have a rhythm that can space out a joke and make it poetry. Da-da-da-da-da-da is a natural rhythm. And a joke should go da-da-da-da-da punchline. And if it's da-da punchline, not as funny. But if you can add something that's fucking son of a bitch, there's a da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it makes it funny. It makes the rhythm more than the... the and then it's ready for cable. Absolutely. And you won't have to do birthday parties anymore. <laughs> well, I know that there is also political correctness and other reasons that 
for television reasons, things need to be changed. But when you develop a routine and you hone it and everything in it, as you say, is musical, it's a symphony. And then they go, yeah, just just change that one note. It's so out of place and it's so awkward. I know I had it one time on a joke for The Tonight Show and they said, ah, oh, you know, but you can just keep the rest of it. I go, the rest of it doesn't work without that. So why don't I just cut the whole joke? Yeah. I remember in Oklahoma, I was doing a routine about a nativity scene. They just said, <laughs> just don't mention the baby Jesus. I go, that's the main dude. No baby Jesus, no scene. <laughs> yeah. It's either the nativity scene with Jesus or it's a barnyard. You know, right, there's no right. there's no two ways about it. Well, my friend Harry Anderson, who I miss a lot, one of the lost comedy geniuses, he had a joke and it was goddamn, I think. And he had cards. You may say, shuffle the cards. Shuffle, shuffle, the, sh- shuffle the goddamn cards. And it would get a big laugh. So obviously, Saturday Night Live or something says, well, you can't say that. And he said, well, then I won't get the laugh. So I'll tell you what you do. I'll just go ahead and say it, and you bleep it. That was smart. They go, well, okay. Because he said, I would rather hear, have the audience at home hear the laughter there and know it was funny, even if they missed it. So they bleeped God. Shuffle the damn cards. Yeah. I I never got it. You couldn't say God. Right. They didn't bleep damn is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. Maybe they noticed that it was a a lowercase g and they didn't (laughs) want that. (laughs) Maybe. I think you're adding something to the censors of a network show that they don't have. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about your love of language. And I have to say, the storytelling you do within this show is great. I mean, there's historical references there's like there's learning going on along the way, not just about ventriloquism, but just about how people reacted to things. Uh, one of the things I loved was the disembodied head. The guy's <laughs> head gets chopped off and you reach into the basket and pull up the severed head. But that was based on something historically true, right? Yeah, as far as, I mean, we don't have film of it. We don't have pictures yeah. of it. But in ventriloquist lore, when you cut somebody's head off, you hit the nerves. And sometimes, you know, like a snake, it goes crazy. Not every time. But those times that it did, the ventriloquist soothsayer would be right there. And when he realized that was happening, he would just add language to it until it died. Right. But would make prophecies and would, uh, you know, solicit money and do everything he wanted to do. You don't disagree with a disembodied head when it's talking, you know, you don't do it. Much of that early ventriloquism did stem from things like uh, seances, right, of people throwing voices really before it was entertainment. And I think that's why the secrecy of it. Why is it such a secret thing? Because early on, yeah, you had to keep it a secret or you would be burned at the stake or hung or something. Yeah. It's mentioned in the Bible a couple of times. I think the translated word is oboth, which would mean something close. I'm not up on my Hebrew, but it's mentioned there, but it's always mentioned in a negative connotation because they were actually conning people out of money. They were actually cheating people. And and so stay away from those people, you know? Kind of like speaking in tongues or some sort yeah. of thing like that? It was definitely, uh, a, let me contact the spirit and the spirit will tell you what you need to know and you better do what it says. Yeah. You have such great technique. I love the telephone routine and I think you describe it as a game you played as a kid where yeah. you were yeah. ordering a pizza or something. So <laughs> tell me one, how the pizza game began and then let's talk about the telephone call to three employees where they each have to answer in order to get what you want. <laughs> 
dyslexia wasn't recognized until I was in high school. So I, I grew up being a kid that was hard to keep interested in. So my mom was a genius and she would make me puppets. She would do all kinds of things. But one of the things she learned that I liked to do was talk on a disconnected telephone. And then one day she realized that she thought she heard somebody talking back and immediately went to say, oh, I'm so sorry. And it was, phone was unplugged. I just thought that's the way you played telephone. I didn't know that was anything unusual, you know. So for the show, I recreate one of the routines that I would do when I was talking to two of my imaginary characters called Jackie and Gaga. It's very interesting. A phone voice and a distant voice are similar, but they're not. Yeah, describe the difference for me. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm talking here to Pat Hazel. Are you there? I don't have anything going on. No, nothing. Can I talk to your friend, uh, uh, Bob? Oh, yeah, hold on. Okay, well. Hello. Hello, Bob. Yeah. I'm talking to uh, Pat. Trying to describe this between a phone voice, uh-huh. like you have now, no, 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 no. your phone voice now, and a distant voice. Uh, the distant voice has no... Uh, what? The distant voice has no uh, distance. The distant voice has more distance. Thank you, Bob. Okay, you're welcome. Okay. It's muffled in a different way. A distant voice would be my friend Raul. Hey, Raul. What do you want? Are you okay? All right. Okay. You stay up there. Up there. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and it's just a matter of the pressure and and feeling it, you know? It's kind of like singing. Well, just so the audience doesn't think this is the too perfect theory again, that's just you sitting there at your desk. That's just me, yeah. There's not a guy, Raul, sitting in the background there. <laughs> no, although, oh, what was his his name in radio? Fred Allen. He used to involve like, the worst ventriloquist act, and I'll prove it twice a day, is, is how he built himself. And he would do jokes, and they say, okay, now my ventriloquist. And he said, I will throw my voice up in the balcony. And so he did. And you would hear one of the ushers go, hello. And he said, and now I'll throw it to the other side of the house. And you would hear the usher go, <laughs> the other side. <laughs> and that was his ode to ventriloquism, yeah. That's funny. Well, you know, earlier, before we were recording, I told you I wanted to tell you a story. And I don't know who to credit for this, but it was an argument between two actors that were trying to upstage each other. Yes. One person said to the other, I can upstage you without even being on stage, which, yes. which is the ultimate challenge. What the actor did when they left the stage was they set a glass of water precariously right on the edge of the table. The audience wasn't paying attention to the actor on stage. They were like, that glass is going to go. That glass is going to go. Of course. Oh, that's brilliant. I did hear about, I think it was Betty Davis maybe on stage in a play and somebody wanted to play a trick on her. So they had the prop man ring the phone right in the middle of her scene. And she went over and she answered it and she said, Yes, he's here. It's for you. And walked off stage <laughs> and just gave it to another actor. Yeah. That's don't, pretty funny. Don't mess with a pro. Don't mess with a pro. We had a live phone in a show I had called Bunk Bed Brothers. We had them put a live phone on stage because the bit of business we wanted to do at the time that Domino's pizzas had to be delivered in 30 minutes or less. Right, right. We would call in as the actor. We would call in and order a pizza in the play. And then when it would arrive... The guy had to deliver it through the threshold. They had to come in and be in the play for a few minutes. Now, it was a funny little hook, but we mostly did it because we were starving actors. And we knew if we wrote it in the play, we would get a pizza every night. (laughs) Perfect. Right? So we got really, really tired of pepperoni pizza. But there was always one waiting when the show would end, and then the crew would fight over it. 
<laughs> Perfect. Hey, let's talk about some of your other characters because you have so many really intriguing characters. They're so physical. They get really animated and even agitated. And somehow that's the right side of your body. And the left side of your body keeps its cool and has one hand on its belt or, you know, whatever. What's your focus? What's going on at that moment when you are playing two roles in a play? That's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a a stock answer. But for me, when I'm performing, I am putting myself in the place of the audience most of the time. So in my mind, I'm seeing the two of us as we should be seen. If I don't think in two at once, then somebody's going to get lost. One of the greatest criticisms I have about a young ventriloquist is that the puppet will talk and then the ventriloquist will talk for a while and then the puppet will talk a while. And that's ping pong. A puppet has always got to be alive and moving. And so the audience thinks he's independent from you. So I think it's taking the audience's perspective for me. That's interesting viewpoint, though, because then you're sort of you're the senior editor of the scene. You're like, you know exactly what where the focus needs to be. Right. But keeping the puppet alive. And I've noticed you do it so well with Bob, who you is attached at your hip, so to speak. Just the simple tapping of the leg that comes out. You could show his impatient with the foot swinging. Yeah. That's what really happens between people. They're waiting to talk. They want to make their point or they roll their eyes or whatever those choices are which I guess is why you feel so much the dynamic of it being two people with tension. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It has to be two people all the time, not one and then the other and one and then the other. And I also think that a lot of times emotion can be carried out with body language and and a puppet should have body language as much as a human being. For a class one time, I took an old clip of Ronan Martin and I covered up the comic's face. I covered up Dick's face and it just left Dan. And I said, now watch Dan listen to him. And it wasn't just static. He was emphasizing and going with, and he was as active. You have to have both. It has to be alive like a like a two-man act. Yeah. Right. But much of acting is reacting. Absolutely. It's not always the dialogue. You also sing, and well, I think you sing quite well. Many <laughs> well, of the characters sing. But did you have formal training singing, or were you a guy that did sing in choir or school? Never sang in choir. I was in band. My sister has a trick voice. It's a lyrical coliatura, very high soprano. And she early on found a teacher through a friend of mine, a piano player, that was in our hometown and taught opera and was a vocal genius. And she would come home and she would say, oh, Mr. Tate told me this. And I would go, wow, that's interesting. So I sat in on one of her lessons one time to hear him. And he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a ventriloquist. And he said, oh. He said, well, do something for me. So I did something. And he went, oh, I get it. I see. He said, would you like to study some more about that? And I said, well, yeah. He said, I think I can strengthen the muscles that you're going to need to do that. And the way we did that was through vocal exercises like a singer would use. So so it was kind of a singing lesson, but it was it was used to strengthen my um, uh, ventriloquism. And a lot of that voice then is coming from your diaphragm or below? It always comes up here, but it's the, the amount of filter and the amount of pressure you put on your voice. Mr. Tate had some interesting ways to get your breathing right. He would, these three fingers. Not your thumb or your pinky you're showing me. The width of your mouth the length of your nose, the size of your ears, and 
Oh. It's the point at which your jaw disconnects and dislocates. That and it's trivial. So if you, Mr. Tate, would measure your fingers and get a little peg, and you would put a peg, and when that opens, your jaw comes down, and that makes all the sound go up into your sinuses and your mask. Oh, so you're singing with that peg in your mouth, keeping your teeth open. Yeah, and that's pushing the air up, and pretty soon the air, when it gets used to doing that, doesn't want to go back. You know, it always wants to go up in there, and that's how they do it. And he determined that. A distant voice was what opera singers called a coup de glas. They take their glottis, if they feel like they don't have enough breath to finish the phrase, they will take their epiglottis and push it very hard against the windpipe, which is like putting your thumb on a hose. It makes the same amount of water go further and the same amount of air go further. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But that pinch, if you get control of that pinch, that's a distant voice. So, Well, let's go back just a bit because you mentioned your mentor. Mm-hmm. Arthur Seving, and I don't want to pass over that. There are two steps to get to him. Number one, do you remember when you first saw a ventriloquist prior to us going to him? Do you remember the very first instance when you discovered ventriloquism was a thing? Probably uh, an Ed Sullivan show. And I was playing voices and I was playing puppets, but I hadn't connected that it was ventriloquism at the time. And I remember my brother saying, you know, that works. He's got his hand in the back. And I went, wow, oh, that's great. And he's doing the voice. And that was like, oh, oh, I get it. So it must have been either Ricky Lane or Senior Winches or somebody, you know, that was on the Ed Sullivan show a lot. So by the time I met Arthur Seaving, I was a performer. I was a ventriloquist. I was doing what I did. And that was a big era, though, from Senior Winches on that was a big era of like ventriloquists coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. The art firm had kind of taken a backseat during radio, except for Edgar Bergen, who made it work. Because you couldn't see him. There was no big radio shows, you know. The greatest scam in the world was ventriloquism on the radio. There was a guy named Peter Burroughs. His puppet's name was Arch Andrews. He saw the Bergen show, went to London and did exactly the same thing. Was not a ventriloquist. Didn't matter. Got a puppet. Did two voices. So, yeah, it it was pretty easy back then. But then, you know, television comes along and all the vaudeville performers now have a place that they can spin the plates and they can do this stuff. The Ed Sullivan show was perfect for that. So, yeah, it was a huge time for ventriloquism, all variety acts, I think. So you set out to find a very unique handmade puppet for your partner after having done many shows with, I guess... A little Jerry Mahoney, yeah. A little Jerry Mahoney dummy, yeah. Right, which was a character that was already famous and already had a character and so forth. You look at catalogs, you go through all kinds of things, nothing sings to you, and you stumble across the last name on the list, which is this guy, Arthur. Yeah. It was alphabetical, so a seeming would have been toward the end <laughs> of the, the run, yeah. But this guy's in his 70s, right? Yeah, he was 71, I think. And he had pretty much retired and... He didn't perform much anymore. He was still carving, but he was carving, I think they call them dioramas. And at his hometown in Springfield, Illinois, he had created a diorama of Lincoln, Lincoln's life, and had these perspective little amazing scenes that he had done. We hit it off, and we were together maybe 24 hours once. And it was a a letter relationship. We had letters and, and we would communicate that way. So it was just luck and just blessing that I found that man. And he maybe had 
10 puppets that he carved in his entire career, maybe less. Most of them were just for himself. So, yeah. And you said when you came to pick Squeaky up, which was the puppet he carved for you, you describe in the show this sort of amazing tea party of you sitting around with him having his puppet, you having your puppet, and some other puppets coming on board. And then his wife bringing out milk and cookies for the whole gang. The whole gang, which yeah. is uh, like an Alice in Wonderland moment. Oh, it was, it was fantastic! And just to be in his workshop, and he showed me. Oh, an interesting thing at his at his death, of course, I was given his partner Harry O'Shea, which was very emotional. But his new wife Blanche and I stayed in touch with letters, and she said, "We're cleaning out the workshop." And we found a little puppet that's not finished. And I don't know what to do about it. So I said, does it have a little bit of a turned up nose? And I described the puppet. And she said, that's it. Well, the story is when I was there, we went down to his workshop and he was working on, I believe, this puppet. And I said, he's really, really cute. I think I would love to buy that when you're finished. And he said, well, it's so close to squeaky. I don't know if you would want to do that. We'll talk about it. But yeah, you let me know. And he never talked about it again. And I think he never touched it, thinking that one day I would call him and say, would you finish it? Uh, so she sent it to me and, and I finished it. So Oh, it was... that's amazing. All right. I, I don't want to spoil your show, but when you receive Harry O'Shea, and at that moment, you ostensibly become his new guardian... Something happens. She delivers his puppet to you, and she asks you to pick the puppet up and speak to her after he had passed. And it is such an extraordinary moment or sense of that because literally his routines and his thing came back through you, and you weren't that aware of how that happened. And to me, that's one of life's miracles. It was a single performance for one single lady for a moment in time, and... I remember remembering his routine that he had done for me those years before. But when you think about it, she had a relationship with Harry O'Shea as much as she had with Art Seaving. You know, it wasn't just a pup on her shelf. That was not his style. If she saw Harry, Harry was working and talking and functioning. He wasn't Harry until he came to life for her at the very end. Yeah. And they never had children, right? So right. this would essentially be their family. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't know when Blanche passed away. We lost touch after a while. She was not as much to write as art was. But uh, what does the word ventriloquism mean? Like, where does that come from? It's a compound Latin word. Ventre, meaning your stomach, and loquis, meaning to speak. So it really means speak through your stomach. And the reason is they thought those early ventriloquists were talking from a demon that possessed their souls and their souls were in their stomachs. And if a ventriloquist is really good, the diaphragm is really strong and moving. So if nothing was moving but the diaphragm, you say, okay, the sound is coming from a demon, you know. In French, it's in gastromethe. And in Japanese, it's fuku ajesis. Now, does this make you a person that can hold your breath longer or are better swimmer? Or does this apply to any other parts of your life? I have really great capacity. Squeakier Bob used to hold the note of the end of a song until everybody thinks that it's a recording. <laughs> I don't do that as well anymore, but I could gauge my breath and keep it going for a long, long time and uh, love to hold my breath as long as I could. You know, I love breathing and any sort of vocal work. You have to kind of like 
both of them, you know. So I love all the breathing techniques. I don't know if you have a definition, but is ventriloquism is it an art, a skill, a craft, a parlor trick, a curse? <laughs> well, probably, probably curse comes closest, but I think it's an art form. I think the definition of art is vague enough to include a lot of things, but ventriloquism, when it's done right, it supersedes itself. I think any art it's not what it is, but what it says and what it makes you feel. So if I can perform and make somebody feel like, yeah, there's two people on stage or make them feel like I don't have control over this character, then I think that's causes it to be an art because it transcends itself. Well, the last thing I remember from the show that I feel has some significance is the care of the puppet when you put it in the suitcase that Arthur taught you something about how to handle them and what to do with this black cloth. Yeah. Will you tell that to the folks? Well, Art did not believe that puppets were display toys, so nothing on a shelf, and that they were an instrument, a very delicate instrument that needed to be protected, just like you would protect a violin or anything else. So the care of it, combined with his Greek tradition, an old ancient Greek tradition, that your spirit leaves through your eyes when you die. And since little puppets don't have any eyelids, he wanted you to put a black cloth over his eyes so that that little spirit that you've been given life wouldn't get up and move around and get lost. And it's a wonderful tradition, but it's also perfect to the care and feeding of a puppet. You know, you need to do that. It's a protective thing, you know. I think that's really lovely. And we're going to put a black cloth over your eyes here shortly. <laughs> I just mean at the end of the show, I don't... <laughs> metaphorically, you've got a long life ahead of you, Jay. I'm sure that that's how I'll go. Actually, I've told the kids that when it's my time, that they should just find an old folks home that looks like a Hilton. And just before they close the door, they'll say, they'll call you for sound check and just close the door. I'll be in my world waiting for them to call me down for a sound check like I've done 50 billion times in my life. And I'll find other things to do until they're ready. So, yeah. Well, it seems to me that the coffin closing is the best place for a ventriloquist to throw a voice. So if one of your ventriloquist friends doesn't say goodbye as that thing's going down, they're missing a great opportunity. Did you hear about the guy? As they lowered his casket into the grave, he had put a recording saying, I'm not dead. I'm fine. I'm fine. And that was his last joke. So maybe I'll have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like it. I'm going to refer the audience to a few things. Number one, they can go to YouTube and they can watch some of the greatest clips from you on soap. But I suggest that they go right to Amazon Prime. The delivery and the pathos and the performance, it's bar none. The humor, it's all fantastic. Of course, worthy of that Tony Award. But I just think the legacy of your work is something that if people don't know you, I would love them to experience it in that package. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. I'm proud of that show. I'm proud of the way it happened. Uh, again, meeting Art Seaving was a blessing and being able to do the show and tell his story is another blessing. So I've, I've been real fortunate. The legacy of you and of Arthur and the idea that you're telling a story, it's a very romantic history lesson of ventriloquism, which is, a, I think, an art people don't know enough about. So I'm so grateful for you investing the time to talk today. Thank you, Pat. You're the best. Thank you, pal. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the leadership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. 
Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring.